Job chapter 9, this is Job's response to Bildad. Remember that in the book of Job, Eliphaz, who represents experience, and Bildad, who represents tradition, is responding to Job's circumstance. Job chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise and hard and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. How then can I answer him And choose my words to reason with him. In Job chapter 8 through 14, there's a series of accusations that are made by Job's friends. Remember how the book starts out. There is this curtain that opens up in heaven and you see the dialogue that takes place between God and Satan over the life of Job. And you'll remember... The invitation. Job is considered righteous and upright. And Satan says, allow me to test him and he'll deny you. And remember, Job doesn't have access to that information and neither does Eliphaz and Bildad. And so you know throughout the whole book the backdrop between what's happening. In the previous chapter, Bildad suggests that Job is being senseless. Your words are a blustering wind. In other words, Bildad accuses Job of blowing hot air. That there's a reason why he's suffering. There's a reason why he's in such pain. And there's a reason why he's in such difficulty. If he would just confess his sin, then he would experience restoration. Remember, Bildad makes an appeal to tradition. He says, remember the former generations to look at the wealth of information that's been gleaned from the generations that have passed. And Bildad argues that those who are without God, those who refuse to retain a knowledge of God, will wither and die. And once again, Job seeks to defend himself. Not against what Bildad is saying right, but what Bildad is saying wrong. Because Bildad is accusing Job of having something terribly wrong in his life and that's why he's experiencing such hardship. Job feels like he's innocent, that he hasn't done anything to deserve the kind of affliction that he's experienced. 
But he asks the question, how do you argue with God in verses 1 through 14? Job wonders if God lumps the innocent in with the wicked and that he says, look, I'm just going to take care of all of them and, and I'll sort it out later. Job seems to sense that he's suffering for no reason in verses 15 through 31. Job wishes that there was a mediator. Someone who could place their hand on God and place their hand on him and explain his situation and resolve the conflict and take care of the dispute. And remember what Job has lost. He's lost the ability to make a living. He's lost his family. He's lost his health. He sometimes wishes, most of the time wishes, that he were dead. He feels abandoned. He feels forsaken. He feels misunderstood by those who came to offer support and comfort. Job finds himself accused of something that he didn't do. And yet those closest to him continue to suggest, you know why all of these horrible and terrible things are happening to you? Is because you've done something wrong. There's something wrong with you. And so Job wonders, why is God silent? Why doesn't the Lord show up and explain what's going on in my life? Where is God? Is he just? And so in this particular portion, Job is in effect going to ask for a trial. Job wants to take God to court. He wants to have the opportunity to demonstrate his innocence and integrity. What Job is asking for is a fair hearing. And Warren Wiersbe points out that this chapter and the next chapter has the vocabulary that's ripe with the words of litigation and law. There's the word contend in verse 3. It reappears in chapter 10, verse 2. It means to enter into litigation. And so when you see in verse 3, where it says, if one wished to contend with him, it, it, it would be a, a, another way of saying issue a subpoena or invite a trial. The word answer means to testify in court. Judge in verse 15, an opponent at law. He talks about an accuser. He talks about setting a time in verse 19, which is a summons to a court. He uses the term in the Hebrew, daysman, which is translated in the New King James, mediator. It really means umpire or arbitrator. It was a wise person in the village circumstances who would, who would help Resolve a dispute, so it means to reason in chapter 13, verse 3, or to argue a case, or order my cause, prepare my case, plead, dispute, hear me, give me a legal hearing, adversary, that's someone who accuses. The whole two chapters is going to be ripe with the words of litigation and trial. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a summons come to you where it says, where someone says, I'm going to sue you or I'm going to do this to you or I'm going to do that to you. And they use the legal processes in order to try and coerce you into doing something that you wouldn't otherwise do. But here, 
Job begs for an opportunity to have a fair hearing. In Job chapter 9 and chapter 10, he's going to ask three questions. How can I be righteous before God? In verses 1 through 13. How can I meet God in court? In verses 14 through 35. And then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 22, particularly in verse 18, he's going to ask the question, Why was I ever born? Job is righteous. But how can he prove it? And when he uses the term righteous, he doesn't mean in the theological sense of a person who's never done anything wrong. He's using it in the judicial sense of a person who hasn't done anything to deserve this kind of treatment. But here's his dilemma. Who knows the truth about Job? God. How can he get God to testify on his behalf? How can he get God to resolve this issue? What is the purpose of his suffering? Why is all of this happening? Now again in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so. He's making reference to the earlier chapter where Bildad said, Don't you know that God is just? Remember what he has said. When you compare the righteousness of God and the righteousness of man, who can stand? Job says, I agree with you. Truly, I know it is so. But how can a man be righteous before God? Job agrees that God is just. The issue isn't whether or not God is just. What he's asking is, in light of the fact that God is a perfect God, that he is a just God, that he is a holy God, that God has perfect righteousness and perfect justice. How can you plead your case with God? And so in verse 3, when he says, if one wished to contend with him, bring him to trial, have a dialogue with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. If a person could stand before God, what would you have to say? So when he says, if one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him. If anyone has ever asked you the question, hey, if you could stand before God, what would you say to him? And some people stupidly and foolishly say, well, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to ask him all about the suffering in the world. And I'm going to ask him about, about the tsunamis and, and the earthquakes. And I'm going to ask about suffering. And I'm going to ask about all of the human trafficking and all of the abuse and all of the injustice. I'm going to... What, what are you really going to do? If you stood before the glorious self-existent God who is the ruler of heaven and earth, it's going to feel like you got the air knocked right out of you. That what you are going to do is you're going to try to press your face as close to the ground as possible and hope that you don't have to say anything. If a person could stand before God, this is Job's way of saying, what would I have to say? Human beings, now think about this. Here's what Job is saying. There is the perfect God and human beings are imperfect. One in a thousand would, wouldn't even have the slightest clue of where to begin. If you could form words on your mouth, 
what word would you try to form? If you could only say one word. Judge me. Sorry. Mercy. Paul will later write that there's none righteous. There's no, not one. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is guilty of imperfection. Everyone has both known sin and unknown sin. But see, this is where Job is a little bit different. Job is unaware of deliberate sin, willful sin, known sin. I wish I could say that about myself. I wish I could say, hey, you know what? If I stood before God, I I know that there's nothing, hey, really wrong. Rather, I would have to say, I'm so full of known sin that all I have to do daily is to say, Lord, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is sinful, and this is wrong. And Lord, thank you for your grace, and thank you for mercy, and thank you for Jesus. Yet Job is unaware of deliberate sin in his life. Of known sin in his life. Job felt sure he is innocent of deliberate sin. In verse 2, again, it's less about salvation, more about justification. I guess the, the word I would use is what Job talks about is vindication and exoneration. Job desires for God to confirm his innocence so that his name can be cleared, so that the charges that have been leveled against him by his friends could be dropped. In verse 4 he says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Job knows that human beings are capable of hypocrisy and deceit. People can fool people. But you can't fool God. You you can't deceive the Lord by claiming to be innocent when in fact you're guilty. Now if you've ever been called to court and if you've ever had to stand before a judge and if the judge has ever said to you, how do you plead? Usually there's three pleas you can enter. Guilty, innocent, Who knows the third plea? No contest. I'm not pleading innocent. I'm not pleading guilty. I'm just simply saying that I'm not even prepared to defend myself against the charge. (laughs) Here's what, what he's saying. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Could I pull the wool over God's eye? Could I pretend to be something that I'm not before God? Could you pretend to be something that you're not before your family, your friends, your neighbors? You can pretend to be something that you're not for people who can't look into your mind and look into your heart. To claim to be innocent when in fact you're guilty is the height of foolishness and Job is acknowledging that. Job also knows you can't compel God to do something that he's unwilling to do. Have you ever met someone who thought that they could? I'm going to make God tell me what's going on. What are you going to do? I'm going to hold my breath until God shows up. Good luck with that. Well, I'm not going to eat or drink until God tells me what's going on. Can you manipulate God, fool God, compel God? Job knows that none of that is possible. 
Job also knows you can't make God do something that he's unwilling to do. Does Job want God to hear and accept his pleas for help? Yes. Job knew that God had the wisdom, the power, the strength, the ability to help him. To prove Job's faith and trust in God's wisdom and power, Job will give nine examples of God's control over that which is visible and over that which is invisible, of that which is in the heavens and that which is in the earth. Beginning in verse 5, I'm going to read down to verse 13 and we're going to go over them quickly. He removes the mountains and they do not know where he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it doesn't rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens. He treads on the waves of the sea. He walks on water. He made the bear, Orion and Pleiades. He's referring to the constellations in the heavens that were followed by the ancient people as they would watch the stars march across the sky. He does great things past finding out. In other words, we we have no idea how complex The universe is and what God is capable of doing. Yes, wonders without number. He goes by me and I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate before him. So let's go quickly. Number one, the Lord moves mountains in verse five. Now, again, what does that mean to us? Well, we could take not a theological look, but a geological look. Imagine you're an unbeliever. Imagine you're a geologist and you go, what moves mountains? And someone might say, well, you know, it all depends on plate tectonics. You see, the earth has a crust, and underneath the crust is a molten uh, sea of magma. And there are tectonics, plates, that move against one another. And when those plates come crashing in, they create mountains. And once the mountains are created, the skies have rain, and the rain falls, and the mountains are eroded. And they return back to the sea. And then the plates crash again, and the mountains are formed. And so the atheistic geologist says, he removes mountains. The atheistic geologist said, no, he doesn't. Plate tectonics and earth movement does that. Here's what Job says. Job says that there is a God who governs all of the natural processes that are taking place on the planet Earth. In other words, there's plates here because God made those plates. There are, there's a molten sea of magma underneath because God made that. There are no supernatural powers or a biblical deity orchestrating the movements of the earth according to the philosophical naturalist, the atheist, or the geologist who doesn't necessarily believe in the Lord. And so people might say, no, there's geological and earth science explanations that account for mountain building and mountain erosion. Here's what Job says. No, there's a God who's created the heavens and the earth. 
The Bible says that God is in charge of the earth processes. Number two, the Lord shakes the earth in verse six. Remember what it says? He shakes the earth out of its place. What do you suppose he's making reference to? What do you think? Go ahead, tell me. Talk to me. Earthquakes. That's exactly right. The Lord shakes the earth. And people go, no, again, it's plate tectonics. The plate tectonics shift and the water or the, the, the earth liquefies right from underneath you. Job says, no. The Lord has power over earthquakes, tremors, the release of energy when the plates crash in together. Here's part of the point. What kind of a God has the ability to literally move the plates of the earth and cause this gigantic release of energy? It's the Lord who creates darkness and light. It's the Lord who establishes the solar system and the galaxy and the universe and every cloud in verse 7. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. In what way? He orchestrates everything on the earth and in the heavens. God made the stars and the constellations in verse 9. He creates and controls the seas and the natural forces in verse 8. The contents of the universe, the galaxy and the solar system. He controls. Here's what Job is saying. Job is set. Job says, the galaxies and the stars and the sky have been set by God. Job says, God controls their light and their intensity, the ability to even see them on the earth. Number six, the Lord performs the multiplied million complex functions that allow the smallest and the largest interactions in verse 10. He does great things past finding out. When Job wrote these words or said these words, remember this is the oldest book in the Bible. Did God create the big things that everyone can see? Did God create the little things that no one can see? Who knows why an electron maintains its orbit around the protons and the neutrons in an atom? I know. The simple physicist will say, well, I can tell you it's because of the presence of positive and negative charges. Yeah, it's true. So you see, there's a natural explanation. There's not a God who holds the universe together. Even though in the book of Colossians, it says that Jesus holds everything together by the power of his might. God creates. God sustains. Verse 7, or actually verse 11, it says, if he goes by me, I do not see him. Question, is God visible or invisible? He's invisible. He's a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John's gospel, no one has seen God at any time. The Bible says that he is incomprehensible in verse 11. Who can grasp his power? Who can point out his identity? Who can resist him? Verse 12, the Lord is the giver of life. He knows and allows things to live and he allows things to die. The Lord has the power to initiate life. The Lord has the ability to end life. 
How can the pot say to the potter, who, why have you made me? God alone determines the existence and the fabric of the universe and the destiny of the universe. He sustains and maintains and exercises sovereign authority in the universe. The Lord alone controls judgment in verse 13. Everyone has to submit to God. God will not withdraw his anger. In what way? God's judgment will occur with or without human permission. And since God has complete authority over life and death, is everyone obliged, obligated to submit to him? I think that the answer is yes. That's the point. So, There's two ways to go along with God. Willfully and cheerfully or reluctantly and bitterly. Pause for just a moment and ask yourself that question. Do I go along with God willingly and cheerfully or reluctantly? And bitterly. Here's Job's assertion. Everyone who is foolish enough to arouse his anger. Are playing a dangerous game. God rules everyone and everything. Is it a good idea to poke God in the eye? Bad idea. Now, having said all of those things, the Lord alone controls anger. Everyone has to submit. In verse 14, look what it says. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? Do you understand what Job is saying? Let's just, for purposes of discussion, say I had the opportunity to actually talk to God. Let's just say for purposes of discussion, I actually got enough courage to even ask him anything. And let's just for purposes of discussion say, since God is powerful, righteous, knowledgeable, pure, just, since anyone who would dare argue with God, since anyone could even suggest that they could instruct God or or give God information that he doesn't already possess. What do you say to him? For the person who argues that God should accept them because they're a good person. Imagine someone says, look God, I'm basically a good person and you should like me. See, you're laughing at what a ridiculous statement that is. Because remember, having said everything that Job has already said, does God know the truth about you? Does God know the truth about your circumstances? But here's part of the point. Job needs God's acceptance and help. Job thinks he's innocent of known sin. 
But here's what Job is beginning to understand. That even if I'm innocent of everything, to the best of my knowledge, I could take a lie detector test and say with all of my heart, I have done truly my very, very best. Is it possible that the God of the universe could find something wrong with me? That's the right answer. So when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why why in the world would you call me good? There's none good but God. We want to stand before God. Not on the basis of how we compare with our neighbor. Or actually, that's how we want to. We want to stand before God. We want to say, you know, compared to to this person, I'm a pretty good person. I use the story all the time of Guido and Luigi. You know the story of Guido and Luigi. Guido and Luigi were Italian criminals who were in charge of mob operations in a fairly large city. And Guido died. And Guido went to the local priest and he says, my brother... Guido, Luigi goes, my brother Guido has died, um, but I want, you, I want you to do the funeral, and I want you to say my brother was a good person. And the priest goes, wasn't your brother in charge of the drugs, trafficking, and prostitution in the city? Yeah. Wasn't he responsible for most of the organized crime in the city? Yeah. And you want me to say he's a good person? Yeah. Look, I'll give you $100,000 if you'll just simply say that my brother was a good person. And so the priest is struggling because they need an extra wing and they could really use the money. And so at the funeral, he goes, many of you know that Guido was in charge of drug trafficking, prostitution, and most of the criminal activities in this city. But compared to his brother Luigi, he was a good person. That's the kind of trial we hope that we have. No one wants to compare themselves with the righteous judge. And so, Job begins to understand that he needs a mediator. There's only one way that he could approach God with the proper perspective and the proper humility and the proper respect. And so in verses 15 through 31, how can we obtain mercy from a perfect judge? Look what it says in verse 15. For though I were were righteous, I could not answer him. In other words, if I could stand before him and not find a single thing wrong with myself, I still couldn't answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. And there's the the big deal. How can we obtain mercy from the perfect judge? Even if Job were righteous, that is, a righteous as, as, a, as righteous as a human being can be. And you see, this is the world in which most people live. They ask and they answer the question, well, how good do you have to be? How righteous do you have to be? What is a sufficient righteousness? 
And so Job will use the imagery of a court. He will, he, he says, look, here's what I would do. You said, here's what you said, Bildad. If I were you, I would make my case before God. And here's Job's response. Okay, if I make my case before God, here's what I would say. God, I'm throwing myself on your mercy. Job makes the shocking statement that even in the absence of known sin, even if he were innocent of all known sin, he couldn't bring himself to answer and defend himself because even the innocent are as if they are guilty and defenseless. Job knows that he's innocent of deliberate sin, and yet God could still judge him. God in his perfection, God in his glory, God in his majesty, God in his holiness, God sets a standard. And the standard is a standard of perfection. And so in verse 16, he says, if I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath. He fills me with bitterness. Verse 19, if it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And if justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. This is an important point. It would be like in our culture and society, remember, for every television show you've ever seen, or if you don't necessarily watch TV, but you've actually had a police officer say to you, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say, how does the rest go? Cannon will be used against you in a court of law. This is Job. Job is saying, even if I opened my mouth, I'm sure that whatever I had to say, God would use it against me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It's all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass like swift ships, like an eagle swooping over its prey. It's a picture of how quickly life goes by. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face. And I'll put on a happy face. I'll wear a smile. Turn that frown. Upside down. That's what I'll do. I'll just pretend like everything's okay. He says, I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap. Yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. Job's pleading for mercy. 
Because even those who are innocent and defenseless in the light of God's holiness and righteousness, he begins to understand, deserve judgment. So number two, Job pleads for mercy because God, as God, awesome in power and judge of everything, doesn't need to give anyone a hearing. This is, this is what Job is arguing in verses 16, 17, and 18. It is, hey, if I ask for a hearing, does God owe it to me to even give me a hearing? Imagine you said, hey, I want to talk to Bill Gates, and I want to ask him for a million dollars. What do you think the chances of, our, of you getting to Bill Gates going, look, all I want to do is ask you for a million dollars. Does Bill Gates owe you time in his busy schedule? No. Well, what if you wanted to see the President of the United States? What if you said, Mr. President, I voted for you. Could you give me five minutes? What do you think the President would say? Probably not. Unless you had the magic words. How much money did you contribute to my campaign? Oh, well then I'll see you. No, but here's the point. Is Job worthy to enter God's court and place himself before God's throne? By the way, does the Supreme Court listen to every case that's appealed to it? What's the answer? The answer is no. Do you realize that maybe one in a thousand cases even gets considered? Does Job deserve a fair hearing for help and healing and restoration? Job feels helpless and abandoned. Bildad urged Job, request a fair hearing. Job begins to think about it, that he has little hope, that that's a remote possibility. I'm going to suggest to you that Job is deeply troubled by the possibility that even if he were able to summon God to hear his case, that if for some reason he were granted access, God would crush him. Imagine if you said, God, just reveal yourself to me. And then all of a sudden God did and you just went up like a puff of smoke. Well, you said reveal myself to you. And remember I had already told in the Bible that if I reveal myself to human beings, no human being can stand before me and live. And that the truth is that's the reason why I put Moses in the, in the crevice and I actually put my hand over him and I walked backwards and he still started to glow like a nuclear explosion. In the presence of God, he wouldn't survive. And so Job pleads for mercy because neither he nor anyone else can stand before the mighty justice of God in verses 19 through 20. Who can issue God a summons? Who can make God appear? Imagine, can you imagine trying to find a legal service to serve God with papers? Sorry, how are we going to get there? In matters of justice, God is unapproachable. God is over all. Here's what it says in Isaiah 33, 22, that God is the giver of law. 
If God is the self-existent creator who created the heavens and the earth and created you and gave you law, do you think God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to submit myself to your perceptions of me and what you think you should get from me. God could find him guilty of anything and everything. That's what it says in verse 20. And even if he were not guilty of deliberate sin, the very words he would use to justify himself could constitute grounds for condemnation. And so Job would have to plead for mercy because God seems unconcerned in verses 21 through 24. Now think about what's happening. Job pleads for mercy because even if he's innocent in in his own eyes, that's a... Different standard with God. Job pleads for mercy because God, as God, is a powerful judge. Job pleads for mercy because neither he nor anyone else can stand before the might of God. Job pleads for mercy because God seems unconcerned. In verses 21 through 24, I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It's all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. In other words, God doesn't seem to care if the good are good and the bad are bad and things happen to both and there doesn't seem to be any differentiation between the two. Why am I even living this life? Job is frustrated This is maybe the strongest emotional statement that he's made up until now. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? In other words, if if the scourge slays suddenly. In other words, if the, the instrument of discipline comes upon human beings and the innocent and the guilty, the young and the old, the black and the white are indiscriminately destroyed. How can I have any kind of explanation? Job is innocent of known sin, and yet God has allowed him to to experience profound suffering and tragedy, and the pain and the disease is prolonged and intense and severe, so severe that he despises his life, and so he wonders... How could God be so utterly unconcerned about his life? So here's what he's thinking. God doesn't care. And so I would ask for mercy. Job knows that God controls everything. That God knows everything So how is it when plagues and tsunamis and earthquakes and wars and devastations don't seem to urge God in one direction or the other? And if you consider the fact that a hundred thousand people can die in a flood in the Indian continent, if you see the earthquake in Haiti, if you see the incredible earthquakes in Japan, if you see not just a hundred or a thousand, but 10,000 people dying, and God seems to be unaffected. He says, I'm going to cry for mercy. And then Job cries for mercy. 
because his life is brief. Again, look at verse 25 and 26. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. And so he says, I'm crying for mercy because you're born, you live, you die. By the way, where is Job at this very moment? As he's speaking these words, as he's responding to Bildad, where is he? He's in a trash heap. He's in a garbage heap. He is a homeless person living in the dump. But even then he feels like his life has been cut short, that it's been abbreviated. He wants God to hear him. He wants relief from the pain before he dies. He wants to die so the pain will go away. And he feels like he has only one option. To ask for God's mercy. And so in verses 27, 28, and 29. He cries out for mercy. Because look what it says in 27, 28, and 9. If I say, I'll forget my complaint. I'll put off my sad face. I'll wear a smile. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? Do you understand what's happening? Job cries out for mercy because no matter how he feels, no matter how he feels, his circumstance doesn't change. What if I have happy feelings? What if I have positive thoughts? What if I put my best foot forward? By the way, happy feelings, positive thoughts, putting your best foot forward. Will that change Job's circumstances? You know, a lot of people talk about the power of positive thinking. And I think positive thinking is better than negative thinking. Clearly, being an optimist seems to be better than being a pessimist. Pessimist, Being positive, looking on the bright side certainly seems better than being a pessimist and looking on the dark side. But Job's sufferings aren't the kind that you ignore or that you can pretend that don't exist. Job's sufferings aren't the kind that, hey, you know what? I'm just going to pretend like I didn't lose my job. I'm just going to pretend like all my children aren't dead. I'm just going to pretend like I don't have a fatal disease. And if you put on a happy face, will that make any of it go away? Will smiling, a change in demeanor, if you watch the Hallmark Channel only, will that change your fate? Here's what he's saying. I could pretend like everything is okay. And it's still not going to change anything. It doesn't make sense to argue with God. It doesn't make sense to struggle with the situation. That's what it means in verse 29 when he says, If I am condemned, then why should I labor in vain? If this is all going to turn out with me before God and God bringing the hammer down saying, You are guilty. 
Why should I even care? Mercy is my only option. And Job cries for mercy. Because getting on the right path, going in a different direction, going to self-reformation, physical cleansings, none of that is going to work. In verse 30 and 31, he says, If I wash myself with snow water, if I cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. It was his way of saying, now think about it. He's in a dump. He's covered with slime. He's covered with boils. Hey, but what if I got to stay at the Waldorf Astoria? Or what if I got to stay at the Westin downtown? What if somebody bought me a place where I could take a shower and I could comb my hair and I could get, I can go to Kohl's and get a whole new wardrobe? Job says, even if I washed, even if I cleansed myself, the horrible reality would be I'm still perhaps not innocent in the eyes of the Lord. Even repentance might not ensure deliverance. I could remain in this filthy dump. And so Job cries for mercy because God isn't like human beings. In verse 32, look what it says. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who could lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. He cries for mercy. The reason why he cries for mercy, again, because God isn't a human being. In what sense? The God of the Bible is a self-existent being who created the heavens and the earth, who knows the beginning from the end, who orchestrates all of the plans and purposes on the planet. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He can't go to court. He can't be debated. There is no further appeal. And so Job begs for a mediator. And we all need God's mercy. No one can stand in the presence of God, declare their innocence. So how do we judge ourselves? Usually by others. How does God judge us? By his own perfect standard of righteousness. This is why Isaiah writes that all of your righteousness are as filthy rags. And so we all need God's mercy. But I want you to think about it for just a moment. Because God is going to send a mediator. Even though Job is crying out to God, Job is expressing the feeling of anyone who has ever felt estranged from God and distant from God and was wondering whether or not God even has anything to say or he's willing to hear anything that I have to say. And now all of a sudden the New Testament makes sense. In Romans 10, 3 it says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the the righteousness of God. And God knew it. 
And in order for God to be merciful, he would have to do something. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 6-2, Have compassion on me, Lord. I am weak. Heal me, Lord. My body is in agony. What does that mean? In times of, of, of deep disobedience. In times of cooperation and not cooperating. In times of rebellion and cooperation. In times of good and bad. In times of grace and the absence of grace. David accepted God's punishment, but then he begged God to discipline him, not in anger. Jeremiah spoke of God's gentle correction. Zechariah, as he he had the vision of Joshua's clothing, filthy before the Lord. He was standing before the angel of the Lord. And the angel said to those who were there, take off his filthy clothes. And he turning to Jeshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins and now I'm going to give you new clothes. Has God heard the cry of Job and the cry of every single person in every single generation who wonders whether or not God is even listening? And so the answer of course, is found in the New Testament. Is there a mediator? Someone said that mercy is compassion in action. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. God's mercy isn't a result of worthiness. The proud can't receive God's mercy. The Pharisee that went up to the temple to pray, he didn't go up to the temple to pray, to cry out to God, to reveal his sick situation. He went up to God to try to prove to everyone who was listening, look at me, I'm not like these people who are around me. And then the poor tax collector beat his chest and he said, be merciful to me, O Lord I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, which one went up justified? Self-righteousness is dangerous because it leads to pride. And pride will lead you to despise other people. John Chrysostom, the church father, said, do you want to have mercy? Show mercy. And so he says, do we have a qualified mediator? For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who could lay his hand on me. Job cries out for a merciful mediator. And so God is going to answer his prayer. He's going to send Jesus Jesus, who can place his hand on your shoulder and place another hand on the shoulder of God. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time, unquote. Job wants a mediator who will reconcile us to God. Look at verse 34. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Do you understand what he's saying? I want a mediator 
I don't want to be afraid anymore. I don't want to live in fear of punishment and judgment. Job feels the rod of affliction and discipline. He feels like he's been beaten. And he wants someone who will remove the relentless, crushing weight of suffering. He wants the pain to go away, and he wants the terror to go away. And remember, it's the terror. Remember what's happening here. This isn't the terror of having lost his job and lost his family and lost his health. It's the terror of coming face to face with God and losing your soul. Is it a horrible thing to lose your job? Yes. Is it a horrible thing to lose your family? Yes. Is it a horrible thing to lose your health? Yes. But what's more terrifying than having lived your whole life and you stand before God And you're still not accepted. Job feels helpless and defenseless. And so he puts himself at the mercy of God. And with his whole mind and with his whole heart, he wonders whether or not God will make a provision for him. In verse 35 it says, Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. That's his way of saying, this is what I would do if the circumstances were ideal and if everything went according to plan. But that doesn't seem to be the way things are going. So he's asking four questions. If you could stand before God, what would you say? What would you say? Be merciful to me, a sinner? Would you say, thank God for Jesus? Would you say, what would you say? If you could declare your own innocence, and if you could declare how good you really are, what would the assessment truly be? If you had tried to appear positive and cheerful, would that help your case? If you had a mediator who told the truth about who you really are, what would you want that mediator to say? Would you want the mediator to say, God, you know the truth about Bob, Mary, Sheila, Bill. Would you want the mediator to say, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who's good. There's no one who's worthy. There's no one who's acceptable. But I was willing to be worthy, perfect, righteous, acceptable. I took upon myself their punishment, your wrath that they justly deserved. And that person's trusted me for life. 
and for love and for forgiveness and for hope and for grace. This person is trusting me to extend mercy and you promised that that's exactly what you would do if I was faithful and obedient and I submitted to you, Dad. (laughs) Jesus is our mediator. He's the sinless and perfect life. And I want you to begin to understand what's happening in Job's life even at this moment as he begins to consider his own circumstances and he begins to understand that in order for him to truly be just and justified, it's going to require someone who can say something to God that's going to make his circumstances okay. And Job begins to realize that God himself is going to have to make that provision. This is why the writer of Hebrews would write in Hebrews 9.15, And for this cause, he is the mediator. Of the New Testament. And that by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions. That were under the first testament. The first testament. Is the old testament. They which are called. Might receive the promise. Of eternal inheritance. You see Job. Like Abraham. And Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph and Judah and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. They're going to all have to look into the future for a provision for their circumstances that only God could provide. And all I did was just scratch the surface. I certainly haven't told you everything that you should know about chapter 9. So read it for yourself, and we'll go to chapter 10. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we see the questions that Job asks, and we ask ourselves, if I could stand before God, what would I say? If I could declare my own innocence and my own goodness, what would it in fact prove? And Heavenly Father, again, the repetitive testimony of the scripture is that we need a savior, a mediator, someone who will put their hand on you and their hand on us. Lord, this is why we gather. This is why we celebrate grace and we celebrate mercy and we give you thanks that there's forgiveness of sin. And that there's hope for the future in Christ. Lord, thank you for our Savior. Thank you for the glimpse that we have, even in the pages of Job, that Jesus is our day's man. He is the mediator, the one who can touch heaven and touch earth, who can touch our infirmities and can touch your generous provision of salvation, mercy, acceptance. In Jesus' name, amen.